welcome back to episode two of The Turnover. I am Jesse Larch, your host. This week, I was joined by two guests, Tim Kelly and Josh Liddick, both from sportstalkphilly.com. Uh, Tim Kelly joined me to talk about the MLB offseason. Josh joined me to talk about the NBA and the season thus far. Tim's interview will be coming up right away to start the show. We discuss Giancarlo Stanton, Shohei Otani, and some other storylines going into the offseason following the GM meetings. That one starts now. I am joined now by Tim Kelly from SportstalkPhilly.com, Tim Kelly Sports on Facebook, at Tim Kelly Sports on Twitter. And he is here to talk the MLB offseason with me. The GM meetings began today, and we're going to kick off now with the biggest storyline of the offseason, Giancarlo Stanton. Tim, thanks for joining me, and what can you tell us about that situation? Uh, what I can tell you, Jesse, and no problem for joining, I- I'm not really sure there's a precedent. Uh, we-, we were talking about this off air for somebody that won an MVP, which we're assuming he wins it over Joey Votto, uh, being moved th- the very next off season. I mean, the-, the thing that I've looked at is LeBron James and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar getting moved after MVP seasons in the NBA, but it- it's just not even close to the same comparison. They're two of the top five players in their history of their sports, and it's just a completely different dynamic. So to me, there really isn't, a, a similar comparison in baseball history. There's a lot of moving parts with John Carlos Stanton. He can opt out after 2020. So if he's playing at at least a decent level, I think he opts out because Mike Trout can be a free agent that off season. Uh, Manny Machado and Bryce Harper will have already gotten gigantic record setting contracts. So uh, if he opts out that off season, you're on the hook for giving him a massive deal on the wrong side of age 30 if he doesn't opt out, that means he's already regressed and you're looking at a backloaded contract through, I believe he signed through 2027 and there's an option in 2028 you would have to buy out. So you can't just to me in this case say all deals are ugly at the end because those seasons still count just as much as the first three seasons you acquire them or whatever the case may be. So uh, I, I'm, I'm still hesitant on Stanton and I know that isn't popular but if I'm paying somebody that amount of money, they better be perfect in every aspect of the game. And to me, he's a below-replacement level fielder. He's had some issues staying healthy, albeit they've been some freak injuries. Uh, and I just I don't think power ages especially well. So I understand the attractions of John Carlos Stanton. He's somebody that the MLB should market the hell out of because he's an, a, a unique player, one like we haven't seen recently with not only the amount of home runs that he hits, but how he hits those home runs. He's incredibly fun to watch, and I think more people should close their stance uh, the way that he has. But I'm just hesitant uh, in any instance to say, I'm going to give up a good amount of prospects, probably not a, a bounty of prospects, but still a good amount of prospects, and take on this contract uh, in return for John Carlos Stanton. Now, this is going to be a two-part question. Um, Do you think any of the teams that have been linked to Stanton especially make sense to add him? And then also, do you think because he is the premier power hitter in baseball, that with where the game's going post-steroid era and with a team like the Houston Astros just winning the World Series with a lineup that was heavy with depth more than a single power output player, 
Do you think that'll hurt or help Stanton's value in these trade discussions? I think it probably hurts. To me, a team, though, like the Giants that doesn't have a ton of prospects to work with but can make the financial investment in Giancarlo Stanton, that might be an instance, and Stanton's from California, that might make the most sense, assuming he's willing to waive his full no-trade clause to go to a team that had the second-worst record in the sport last year. Um, Yeah, no, I think your your point doesn't fall on uh, deaf ears. I look at the Phillies, for example, because obviously that's what I cover, and obviously, John Carlos Stanton would be the best outfielder in outfield that includes Aaron Altair, Odubel Herrera, and uh, Nick Williams. The thing that I look at, though, is do I want to make that massive investment in the outfield where you have three pretty good, pretty cheap outfielders right now? You can make that investment or you can go with those guys and spread that money around. You can make that big investment in the starting rotation. You can make one in the rotation, one in the bullpen. Uh, to me, I, I think you're right. If you're going to make that investment, it better be somebody you're a thousand percent sure of. And I, I just can't say that I am with John Carlos. And even after a historic, incredible season, and with the list of outfielders, Jesse, these are the outfielders that are free agents after 2018, and they're all at different points in their career. Bryce Harper, Charlie Blackman, Adam Jones, Andrew McCutcheon, A.J. Pollock, who can still do things if he's healthy. I just feel more inclined to hold on to my prospects and make a deal kind of on my own terms next offseason rather than make that trade. Now, uh, that doesn't mean he won't be traded this offseason. If I'm building a team, am I going to give up a decent amount of prospects and take on that deal for John Carl Stanton, knowing that the Marlins have had a few seasons now of Christian Yelich, Marcelo Ozuna, and John Carl Stanton. Ozuna had an all-star year this year. Uh, Yelich has been very productive. He wasn't as good as he's been, but he had a very good year. And John Carlos Stanton's probably going to win the MVP and the Marlins didn't finish above 500? Probably not. Yeah, I definitely agree with a lot of what you said. Um, I think some of the names coming up, especially a guy like Harper, Charlie Blackman's a player I love to watch. I mean, there is that reason to wait. And now transitioning a little bit to another big name this offseason is Shohei Otani coming over from Japan. How do you see his whole saga playing out, especially with him saying that he wants to be a two-way player both in the field and on the mound? Yeah, Otani's interesting to me. Obviously, because the Phillies haven't been interested, I haven't dove quite as deep into that. But he's interesting to me because if he's really worth the incredible amount of money that he's about to get, I think it will come as a pitcher. And regardless of what he can provide as a hitter, if he's... If you're paying him that amount of money to be a pitcher, I think teams are going to be very hesitant to use him as a pitcher, to use him especially in the field or as a pinch runner on games that he's not pitching. I mean, Adam Wainwright, Charlie Morton, they're just a few pitchers that have gotten hurt while hitting or while running out bunts or what have you over the past few seasons. So we may be able to assume that he's more athletic than the average pitcher. I get that. But if he's if you're paying him over a hundred million dollars to be your pitcher, then I, I just I'm not sure the two way thing is very realistic in today's game. Now, ESPN's Jerry Krasnick he did a poll of all the GMs, and the fourth most likely landing spot for him in 2018 was that he would stay put in uh, in Japan. So I I do think that that possibility still exists. I always think. Either West Coast teams, the Mariners, the Dodgers, the Giants, the Angels, uh, the Dodgers, these teams have an, an advantage 
over a lot of other teams just geographically. And if not them, I think teams like the Yankees who have had Tanaka, they've had Ichiro. You go down the list of different Japanese superstars that these teams have had. Uh, if you're a player coming over from Japan, I think you either want to stay on the West Coast or you want to play for a historic franchise that you've seen previous Japanese greats play for. So I think those type of teams have the advantage um, I'm, I'm excited to see what happens with Otani because the Phillies aren't in, so I can kind of just sit back and examine what happens with him this offseason. I think he's a test case, though. There aren't going to be, even if he has a ton of success as a two-way player, there's not going to be a, a rush of two-way players simply because there's not that many people that are capable of pitching and hitting at, the, at that caliber of a level. But I'm interested to see especially if he goes to a National League team, if there's a way that a team can work him in, or even in the American League, if a team could use him as a DH, and if teams will be willing to do that. Now, you spoke a bit about the risk of taking on a player like Otani. Can you speak on the track record of other players coming over from Asia? We know Eric Timms went to Korea, and he was reborn when he came back this year. Um, Speaking of the Phillies, Darren Ruff went over to Asia this season and did pretty well he hit some you know deep home runs but then you have some pitchers like a Darvish and like a Ryu that have had some success and they've also had some letdowns you know how do you really gauge if a player is the real deal coming over from another league I think it's the same as when you're evaluating NBA talents that come from Europe it has to be case by case that doesn't mean you ignore historical precedent but take for example Hideo Nomo does Hideo Nomo impact how you feel about a Japanese player at this point or a player coming from any Asian country at this point? Probably not. So you don't look too much in the historical precedent. You factor that in, but then you evaluate it case by case. You mentioned uh, Ryu, you mentioned you Darvish. You have to be sure that the individual player that you're getting is going to be worth it. The thing with pitchers in many of these cases, many of these leagues, they pitch every four days. Uh, they're heavily used in the World Baseball Classic. We saw Dice K. Matsuzaka kind of just burn out uh, after a year or two. So uh, you have to be sure that they're going to hold up, and you have to be sure that they're going to translate over to uh, the United States as at least kind of an all-star caliber pitcher if you're paying them that much or that large amount of money. Yeah, uh, it definitely is a bit of a case-by-case. I agree with what you said there. Um, do you see any other major storylines developing this offseason? I mean, I know there's still some coaching openings out there, and then there's obviously going to be the whole free agent blitz to come here in a couple weeks. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm even looking past this year's free agent blitz and setting things up for next offseason. I'm excited to see what the Blue Jays and Orioles do this offseason. If they kind of start to tear things down, it's clear to about everyone that both teams are headed for fairly extensive rebuilds. I think moving some stars now could expedite that process for both teams. I think the Blue Jays may do that. Uh, Josh Donaldson can be a free agent after 2018. They're not going to contend next year, so I think it it would behoove them to see what's out there for him this offseason. The same goes, Marcus Stroman can't be a free agent, but he's at age 26, he's one of the better pitchers in the league. I think you can fetch a gigantic... Uh, package for him this offseason on the trade market, and you can maybe in the process convince someone to take on the contract of Troy Tulowitzki if they're that uh, into getting Marcus Stroman. 
Uh, then you have the Orioles, who are much less likely, in my mind, to be forward-thinking. For whatever reason, they kind of half-assed bought at the trade deadline last year. Um, and, and, yeah, it did nothing for them. And I think in a year, Buck Showalter probably won't be the manager. Dan Duquette probably won't be the GM. Showalter might be in the front office. Who knows? But uh, the common denominator is going to be Peter Angelos, who I think is one of the most difficult owners to work with in professional sports. And uh, the team should have sold on Zach Britton probably at the trade deadline. I'm not sure they do that again this offseason because historically, uh, John Heyman did a good piece about this. Uh, they just haven't rebuilt. They haven't traded players. And I think that's going to prove to be a mistake. Adam Jones can be a free agent. After next year, Zach Britton can be a free agent. And Manny Machado can be a free agent. As much as it may pain them, you cannot just let Manny Machado walk in free agency. So you should put on the full court press to try to re-sign him. I think he is 1 million percent worth it, even after kind of a strange 2017 season. But if you can't do that, you have to trade Manny Machado uh, and get a giant return for him. There would be a market for him. Uh, as long as teams feel like they're serious about doing it, they can't half-assed kind of examine what's out there. Because if teams kind of get the sense that, yeah, they're looking, but in a year we can just sign him on the free agent market, obviously they're not going to be willing to give up a huge package to obtain him. They have to say, look, we tried to re-sign him. That didn't work, and now we're committed to trading him this offseason. If that happens... That changes the entire dynamic, not only of this offseason, but of next offseason. And I guess the, the, the final storyline, Jesse, that I'd be looking at is the Angels still control Mike Trout's rights for three more years. But I think things are going to get late early. And what I mean by that is if they don't contend next year, you see Harper and Machado get signed. There's going to be a few teams that wanted one of Harper and Machado weren't able to get them and kind of pivot in that direction trade-wise. I, I want to see if the Angels, I don't think they need to, I don't think they even should be looking at trading him yet. I think you have a historical talent and you should absolutely be trying to build around him. If they're not able to do that, though, in a year or two, we probably will be having a serious discussion uh, as much as we've been having the speculative ones for what feels like our entire lives now. Um, I, I think you're going to, it's going to be interesting to see if they're able to build around him because it, it would just be one of the saddest storylines. If you're a team in Los Angeles, this is not a small market team. This isn't even a medium market team like the Orioles or a team like that. If you have Mike Trout for a few more years, he would have been a free agent this offseason. I think Mike Axio of CBS Sports did a good piece about this. If he hadn't signed that extension, so you not only got the six years are guaranteed but you're getting an extra four on top of that if in that time period you can't put a team around him it, it just it truly would be one of the saddest storylines and really the history of the sport i think definitely uh the angels have made a bit of that effort there they just uh inked justin upton down to a bit of an extension you talk about manny machado i mean i think he's one of just the most fun players to watch as is mike trout um and just one final question before i let you go now, I know you followed Gabe Kapler and the Phillies manager Hunt very closely. With Kapler in mind and up against the other names like maybe a Mickey Calloway going to the Mets, how do you feel about the new coaching crops and who do you think is going to have the most success? And also, is there anybody that you were surprised didn't get a job? I think the Mets did a very good job, not only with the hire Mickey Calloway, who seems to have drawn uh, pretty much unanimous reviews around the sport, 
Uh, I think not only did they do that, but they put an experienced coaching staff. They did a good job of mixing kind of new school with old school. Uh, Ruben Amaro might have drawn a lot of uh, laughs in Philadelphia, but he's been on pretty much. And I, I don't think he was a particularly good GM. That's an entirely different story, though. But I think he is somebody that's well-respected around the sport, has good connections around the sport. You put somebody like that, you get an established pitching coach. You kind of did a good job of building a good staff. And I think that that is very important. Uh, Gabe Kapler, I think, I like the idea of a progressive mind. I worry about Gabe Kapler kind of having a shelf life. I worry about him being able to connect with people. Just based off discussions I've had with people around the league that either worked with him or uh, have kind of had dealings with him. I- I'm a little concerned about whether this works. I think this is kind of a boom or bust hire. And if it if it booms, then great. Uh, if not, I, there were plenty of people in Los Angeles that worked with him that were not huge fans of his, uh, including some of the players that kind of prevented him not only from becoming the manager a few years ago, but maybe even from becoming... Uh, a base coach, and that's not uh, just the 25th man on the roster. That was Adrian Gonzalez. That was Clayton Kershaw. That was some of these premier players. Uh, really, just were not fans of him in Los Angeles. So, I think he's in a different role now. I think he has a chance to learn from what he, uh, any mistakes and missteps he may have made. Look, he he is a smart mind. He's a smart person. Period. You listen to him talk. He's extremely prepared. He has some good ideas. Uh, I think having an analytically focused uh, manager is the right way to go. I think the idea of Reese Hoskins hitting second in the lineup excites me. So we'll see what happens. As far as uh, guys that I'm uh, surprised didn't get a job, I'm not sure there necessarily is that one guy. I think Alex Cora and Mickey Callaway were the two guys I thought uh, were locks to be really good uh, managers moving forward. The Dusty Baker thing in Washington, it still kind of gets me because I'm not fooled into thinking, I think there's these two camps where either you think Dusty Baker's a horrific manager or you think Dusty Baker was a great manager. I think he kind of falls into that Charlie Manuel category where he's not a very good in-game manager, but for that specific team, he connects well, he's a player's manager, and the players really liked Uh, Dusty Baker in Washington, and he kind of got things back under control after Matt Williams had lost the team in his final few years there. And I I just thought them losing really had nothing to do with him. So I just, I don't think that that, and I like Davey Martinez bringing him in as a manager. I just think you probably should have just kept Dusty Baker there. So there's not really one that surprised me. But I think Dusty Baker, if there was a situation where he was the right manager, I know people kind of speculated him about the Phillies and other things. And I said, no, he's not the right fit in that situation. But in a situation where you pretty much need the manager to keep the players level-headed and stay out of the way in a lot of cases, I think Dusty Baker was very good in that role because players, he connects well with them. He's been in playoff situations before. Uh, I think they actually made a mistake moving on from Dusty Baker. Yeah, with the kind of experience Dusty Baker has for a team that's trying to contend, he definitely made a lot of sense for Washington. Um, You actually did say something that I didn't know about Gabe Kapler with his experience with the players in L.A. So I do have now one more question Mm -hmm. for you. With that happening and now him coming to Philadelphia with, you mentioned it was Adrian Gonzalez and Clayton Kershaw and these big marquee players. 
Do you think Kapler coming to a team like Philadelphia that lacks a marquee player will help him get the team under his control and help him lead this team better than he could have in L.A. where people were being a bit of a naysayer to him? I think it's just important to try and establish a culture where you're trying to implement these ideas, but you're not being authoritarian in the nature that you're doing them in. So I think when he talks about eating healthy, he said this at the uh, introductory press conference. We're going to try to educate these players and say to them, look, how did you feel when you had this? How did you do this? It's important to do that. But then he also said we're not going to be the food police. It's one thing to say that. It's another to try to get players to buy in, but then also if they don't buy in or if they only sort of buy in, not to be a micromanager. And I think that that's one of the biggest challenges he's going to have is establishing a culture where he gets players to kind of buy in analytically, to buy in uh, in terms of eating healthier, but doesn't Chip Kelly things and micromanage uh, to the point where two or three seasons in, players can't stand him. I think that's the the biggest challenge he's going to face because he has a lot of good ideas. And I think the best way to do it is kind of the way Matt Stairs approached things as a hitting coach was he got Aaron Al- I, I think Aaron Altair was the shining example of Matt Stairs as a hitting coach. He got a few guys to make adjustments, and that was his impact on the team. You're not going to get 25 guys on the roster to – be drastically improved just by your presence as the manager. Guys are going to do their own things. These are professionals. But if you can get them to make some of the adjustments you make and then find guys that are having success and say, look, this is really working, and kind of point that out to everybody, I think that's the way he's going to be most successful. But it's going to be an interesting time with Gabe Kapler as a manager. This is definitely an experiment. Like I said, I think he has a bright baseball mind. But uh, this could go a lot of different ways. Great content from Tim Kelly, as usual, as we have grown to expect from his time in SportstalkPhilly.com. If you have not read that, you can find him at Philadelphia.com, SportstalkPhilly.com. Follow him on social media, Tim Kelly Sports on Facebook, at Tim Kelly Sports on Twitter. Tim, thank you for joining me, and I look forward to having a discussion with you in the future. No problem, Jesse. Thanks a lot. After speaking with Tim Kelly, I also spoke with Josh Liddick, another one of our colleagues at SportstalkPhilly.com. That interview is coming up next. Josh Liddick of SportsTalkBilly.com. Josh, how are you today? Pretty good, Jesse. How are you I doing? I am good as well. As I mentioned, Josh is of SportsTalkBilly.com. He handles the Sixers coverage for that website. You can follow Josh at Josh Liddick Talk on Twitter. Josh, tell me what you think about the crazy start to the NBA season so far. Um, no- noticing that the uh, there's there's very specific teams out there that are up front and teams that uh you know the the, the Boston Celtics are are on a huge winning streak right now and they're going for 13 in a row um, tonight in the middle of that game right now but just like 
there's so many surprises that you wouldn't normally see before um, going into this year. And uh, now you, you uh, it, it's, it hasn't been the uh, there has, there hasn't been that much of a separation between talent uh, this year compared to like last year, like last year, you knew who was going to be your front runners this year. There's teams that you definitely expect to see out front, but then there's teams that you would never have expected to be this good this early in the season. Speaking of those teams at the top of the league, I asked you before you joined me to put together a top 10 power ranking. Who you think the top yeah. 10 teams are in the NBA? So let's jump right in with who you have at number 10. Well, at number 10, uh, it's kind of an interesting one. Um, obviously, you want this team to be higher. Uh, but right now, I had them at 10, but I almost almost put them outside the top 10 just because of how they've played as of late, but they've won two straight games. I have the Cavaliers at 10 at seven and seven. They are just they're They, they had a slow start and then they've, they've uh, kind of won, they've won two straight, but in those games, they've come from behind. They have not played very well. Um, but I just, I couldn't see my, myself putting them outside of uh, um, the top 10. Yeah, it is so hard to leave the Cavs out of the top 10 with the players they have and with how good they are year in and year out with LeBron James. But recently, I mean, last night they just had to rely on Kyle Korver having an outburst in the fourth quarter. Is that something this team can do to get through the season? Yeah, I mean, they have, you know, when you have a guy like LeBron who's absolutely on a tear right now, he's every year you put him in a situation where he could be MVP at the end of the year. Um, he's playing out of his mind. Uh, Kevin Love's been playing really well, too. He's averaging a double-double. He's averaging uh, 17.6 points a game and 10.4 rebounds per game. And he's just playing at a really, really high level, something that we haven't seen in quite a long time from Kevin Love. Um, but, you know, the, I think that the thing about the Cavs that is not is setting them apart from teams where they're not playing as well as they were last year is that they are just an older team. You know, they're older they they they're more experienced, but they they are not like as physically fit and as as in shape as uh, we have seen the Cavs teams of late. Without Ka Kyrie Irving on this team, this team is is just a much different team, and I think it completely shows it. You mentioned the absence of Kyrie Irving. Do you think when they get Isaiah Thomas back to fill that void that they'll be better? I think they need a guy like Isaiah Thomas out there. I mean, Der Derek Rose is—he's uh, played seven games and he started seven, um, but he hasn't played. He's been—he's been hurt and not really been able to play that much. Um, I think they need a guy like Isaiah Thomas out there. And I didn't—I thought that Isaiah Thomas was an MVP candidate last year, uh, just the way he conducted himself on the court in Boston. Um, I think he's going to add to this team, and I think he's going to play really well with LeBron, and I think that'll help them. Um, as we get into the later months of the season, we're not going to see Isaiah Thomas play until about January, um, if that. Um, but hopefully, the uh, I, right now it looks like LeBron is playing pretty much on his own, with the uh, exception of uh, Kevin Love helping him out there. Now, I mentioned at the start that you covered the Sixers. The team you have at number nine was kind of the predecessor to the mm -hmm. trust the process model in the Minnesota Timberwolves. What are you seeing from them so far this year? Yeah, I think the Wolves are playing uh, pretty well. They've had a few games here and there where they have uh, really shown themselves. Um, let me take a look at their schedule. Um, 
their last game, they they won a game against the Jazz. The reason why I had them at nine is that they lost two straight. One was to the Warriors in Golden State. That's always a hard game. The Warriors have been playing really, really well as of late. They've really came together. The Wolves had won. Um, they had won five straight going into that game, and then they lost in Phoenix against the Suns, which are arguably one of the worst teams in the league. Um, but they are also playing. Uh, the the Suns have been winning, so. I think that, you know, if we would have done this maybe a, like a week ago, I would have had the Timberwolves higher, but they are playing um, better than they were at the beginning of the season. Um, they've kind of turned it on, um, but now they, uh, they they had two of those key losses. That's why I had them at nine. Now, did you expect the Timberwolves to be higher at this point in the year after having Carl Anthony Towns and Andrew Wiggins, then adding Jimmy Butler and Jeff Teague, who has also played some really good point guard for them? Yeah, I mean, I thought that I think that a lot of people thought that the uh, the Timberwolves were going to play a little bit better this year, um, and, and right out of the gate with Jimmy Butler added to the team. I even had before Carmelo Anthony joined the Thunder, I actually had the the Wolves when they made the uh, decision to trade for Jimmy Butler. I had them as a top three team in the West, um, but. You know, um, it is going to take a little bit for them to gel. I'm not worried about the Wolves. I think they're in a really good shape um, for the rest of the season. Uh, it is early, but um, what I've seen so far, I mean, Carl Anthony Towns is a beast. Um, he's a great center, really great piece for this team. Andrew Wiggins playing well, um, you know, and, and and Jimmy Butler as well. I don't I don't think that Jimmy Butler is playing as well as you uh, would like him to be playing. Um, you know, this kind of star that he is. But Jeff Teague uh, is is also a really good addition to this team. He's averaging almost eight assists a game and 14 points a game. He's definitely a guy you want on your team. Tell me who you have at number eight. I have the uh, New Orleans Pelicans at uh, number eight as of right now. Uh, they're playing really well as of late. They have uh, really uh, come together and, 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 and won a string of games here. They've won two straight. Um, and, uh, after, uh, and then they won, they've won, uh, five of their last six games. So that's kind of where, why I had them in there. They beat the Dallas in Dallas. Uh, they beat Chicago in, in Chicago, they beat the Pacers in Indiana. Um, and then they went on the road. They lost to the Raptors by four, but then they beat the Clippers at home. Uh, and then they beat the Hawks all pretty easy games for them. Um, but DeMarcus Cousins has been playing really, really well this season, no doubt. <laughs> 28 points a game. I mean, and uh, 14 rebounds a game and six assists a game. Like, like you don't th – th that's insane numbers for a guy of his stature and his size. And uh, trading for Boogie was like, oh, my gosh, what a, what a move that was last year. So Anthony Davis has 26 points a game as well and, and 12 boards and four almost and three assists. So when you have these guys playing the way that they are playing right now, oh, you got this defensive, um, this defensive thing going on and this offensive thing as well. Um, there's really no surprise that they are uh, as good as they're doing right now. I actually did want to ask you about DeMarcus Cousins and Anthony Davis. You kind of pulled the stats from me there. But do you <laughs> think DeMarcus Cousins has been outplaying Anthony Davis so far this year? Well, I think when they got Boogie last year, I think that you almost thought of him as the addition to Anthony Davis. I think Davis has been the star of this team, the face of this team. Um, and 
Cousins would would really complement that. When when he first joined the team last year, um, they didn't click as well as we thought they were going to. Um, they didn't play as well as they we thought they were going to. I thought the Pelicans would be a uh, pretty good playoff team last year once they added Cousins. But I think this year they're showing that they're starting to to gel a lot better. Um, and them together, it's just a really good duo. I mean, I think Davis wants to be playing a little bit more, and and, uh, and and they're both playing about the same. But I think that he wants to be more of the face. But at the same time, they're ha- they have very very similar stats, um, and uh, it just really shows that they are really enjoying uh, their presence together and what they can do on the court. Yeah, they are playing really well to start the year. Um, Drew Holiday has also put up some really good numbers to start the year for them after receiving what some people thought was being overpaid. He's kind of lived up to it so far. But moving right. on from New Orleans, who do you have at number seven? At seven, I have the Spurs. And all things considered, with no Kawhi Leonard on the floor, they're playing really well. I mean, they you can't... The Spurs are the, that team that every year you expect them to be up front with, uh, led by their head coach, Greg Popovich. Um, they have won four of their last five games. Um, they won a, a seven-point game to the Hornets. Um, they beat the Suns at home. They beat the Clippers at home. Um, they lost to the Bucks, which was a, a, a tough loss at home. And then they beat. They absolutely slaughtered the Bulls, and right now they're playing uh, the Mavericks. Um, but before that, they had lost four straight, and then they had won four straight prior to that for starting 4-0. So they're 8-5 and five now. They're playing a lot better. Um, LaMarcus Aldridge is really playing well for them. Um, but without Kawhi Leonard, they're playing a lot better than I thought they were going to. Rudy Gay's out there. Um, he's averaging 13 points a game off the bench. Uh, Danny Green is always a threat there, averaging 11 points. And Pau Gasol, um, in his older age, is still uh, getting, still kicking uh, with uh, about eight rebounds and 11 points a game and four assists, still playing at a high level. Without Kawhi, uh, they are still playing like the Spurs of old. Yeah, you mentioned LaMarcus Aldridge. He is one of my favorite players in the NBA. He's always filling up the stat sheet, and he does it in a way that isn't really flashy. He's just an extremely efficient player. But talking about the absence of Kawhi Leonard, where do you see this team going once he gets back? Well, I, I see them being one of the best teams in the league. I mean, they, they can do so much with Kawhi Leonard, what he brings defensively and offensively. He's a game changer. He's a gamer. And the fans love him. The the team loves him. The media loves him. And and last year he was even an MVP candidate for part of the season. So um, you know when he's he's an absolute team player. He loves his teammates. The teammates love him. They just they feed off of him and they play so much better. They want him on the floor, and that's what he brings to this team. Their ceiling is that they could compete. But I, I still, I mean, we're going to get to this, but the Warriors are, are, are the Warriors. They're playing well. There's other teams in this Western Conference that I think that are are all around better than the Spurs, but you can't count them out when they have Kawhi on the floor. And right now they're showing like they are a really good team even without Kawhi Leonard. So imagine them getting Leonard back in the lineup uh, sooner rather than later, as uh, Greg Popovich had said uh, a couple of days ago. Um, imagine what that's going to be when uh, Leonard's healthy and coming back. And now at number six, you have the Washington Wizards. What are you seeing from them? Yeah, the Wizards, they're eight and five. Uh, they are sixth on my power rankings list. 
Bradley Beal, John Wall, uh, Otto Porter Jr., all averaging above 16 points a game. Uh, Porter's uh, averaging around 17, Wall at 20, uh, Bradley Beal at 24 points a game. I mean, this team is there. You want them out there. You want them up up top and playing well. Um, and, uh, you know, so far, so good. Um, they are on a three-game winning streak right now, beating the Kings, the Hawks, and the Lakers in their last three games. And and then before that, they uh, they had lost the, the, to the Mavericks and beat the Raptors. And, um, you know, it, I think the common theme in a lot of these guys, these teams' schedules is that the – the the teams that they are beating are um, are not as good as they are, um, and I think that with the Wizards, um, you know, they have a tough uh, tough road, but I think that they uh, they they have it going. I think the Wizards are, I think they're in good shape. I think they're in good shape. Um, you know, Boston's going to be a tough t- team to beat right now, but um, you know, all around they have a guy like Kelly Oubre who's playing really well. Um, got a really big dunk the other night. Marcin Gortat's playing really well, and when we saw him go up against Joel Embiid earlier on in the season, he looked he looked good. Um, so I, I think this team. I don't think they are where they need to be in terms of. I, I don't think they're going to be contenders or anything like that for a, an NBA Finals. But when you have John Wall on your team and uh, Bradley Beal as his complement, um, there's there's really no telling what this team can do. Now, prior to the season, John Wall kind of put everybody on notice. He put up an Instagram post saying how him and Bradley Beal don't really need any superstars to help them out in light of all the super teams being built around the league. Wall averaging 20 and 9 assists. Beal averaging almost 24 points. How do they mm-hmm. stack up against the rest of the backcourts in the NBA? Yeah, I ranked them up there. I mean, I think it, it goes to say it's really telling that John Wall said that you know, they don't need to be like the other super teams in the NBA. You look at this team all around, it, it's not flashy. Um, there's n- It's not a very flashy team compared to other teams. They don't have the best bench. They don't have the best um, overall team. But you have a guy like John Wall, who's a superstar. You have Bradley Beal, who is um, is like his Pippen. I mean, he's, he's, he's there. I mean, I... Bradley Beal is leading the team in points per game, and John Wall's the better player, but John Wall is averaging almost 10 assists a game. So they're doing so much. They're just a tra- they just remind you of a very traditional NBA team. Um, not really flashy, but they don't need to be flashy because they are they're winning games here and there. I think compared to the other um, backcourts in the NBA, Beal and Wall are up there as uh, one of the best. Now we're into the top five. Who's your fifth best team, Josh? Well, the top five, my first uh, number five here is the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, and I have them at five. They're seven and six. Um, they had a slow start to the season, uh, but they added Eric Bledsoe, and he's already play, paid absolute dividends. I mean, he's played so great, um, and they're undefeated while having him on the team. They're on a three-game winning streak. Um, and they've beaten the Spurs on the road, the Lakers, and a decent Grizzlies team in three straight. Giannis, like we're going to get to, continues to play like an MVP in his own right, and uh, they're only going to continue to get better. This team is looking good. They have they struggled at the beginning of the season, but now that they have Eric Bledsoe on this team, he's a, he's a good guard. He's not a star guard, but I think he can do a whole lot more. I had him on my fantasy team last year, and he helped me. With points, he really put up a lot and 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 assists. Um, and I think with him and Giannis, Giannis is one of those guys. He's really interesting. You know, he's not all about that. Um, you know, he he's not all about. He's a very 
team-oriented player, um, but he hasn't really had a whole lot of supporting cast around him. I mean, Chris Middleton's there and some other guys, but when you have Eric Bledsoe there, um, I think that's going to help them a lot, and I have them at number five for that reason. Yeah, and the first thing that I thought about with the Bledsoe trade was how this team can play defense. Now, you can put Giannis in to protect the rim and rebound, and then you're going to have Bledsoe, Malcolm Brogdon, and Chris Middleton to defend the perimeter. It's going to be a really complete defensive team. But now moving on to number four, we have a big surprise. Tell us a little bit about this team. Big surprise. And uh, you and I and everyone else around us did not see this one coming at number four. I have the, the, the oh man, I can't talk. I have the Detroit Pistons at number four at 10 and three. Unbelievable. I mean, the the, the, the thing about this team is that no one saw this coming um, going into this season. You had them maybe at a six or seven seed. Um, if you're looking at the playoffs for next year, um, it's it's really hard to even consider them uh, for what they have done in the past a couple of years uh, of being a member of this top 10 power rankings. Because I, I don't think that they are going to be this good for a longer period of time. I think they're going to start to cool off and we're going to be able to see this team start to fall a little bit. But they have a lot of good players on this team and they are playing they're playing really well. Tobias Harris averaging 20 points a game, uh, five rebounds per game, two assists around there. Um, and he's he's playing really well. Avery Bradley was a huge addition for this team uh, from coming over from Boston in that trade. 17 points a game and uh, uh, almost two assists as well and averaging three rebounds. But, you know, him and then Reggie Jackson as well. And then uh, you're going to talk about this one, but Andre Drummond. Oh, so good. So good. 13.7 uh, points a game, um, 15.6 rebounds per game and three assists. I mean, this team, uh, they're playing. Oh, and he, uh, by the way, averaging almost two steals per game and one block per game as well. Uh, wow. Yeah. Andre Drummond really helping this uh, Detroit Pistons team and hopefully they can keep it up. But um, we'll see how it goes. But right now in the power rankings, I have Detroit as my what number five team four yeah, team. four and then with drummond yep. you've got a guy who has 12 straight games of 12 or more rebounds he just passed shaquille o'neal for 10th all time for 20 point rebound games andre drummond is only 24 years old this is a guy that we can be talking about as maybe the best rebounder ever and I know I've joked before about Drummond being a guy that's kind of one-dimensional. You know, he only really plays inside the paint, but he's so effective there that he's still impacting the game in a oh, major yeah. way. Definitely. I mean, I mean that's that's impressive just looking at that. Drummond, it, I mean, he's that center that you always want to see be one of the best in the league, um, but he's been on a pretty, like, lackluster team. I think we're going to see his teammates kind of help him out there um, and uh, them start to get better. Hopefully, if they keep this winning going, this winning ways going, um, I mean, I think they're going to have a pretty big win margin for a while until, you know, unless they lose like seven in a row or something like that. But Drummond uh, playing really well. Uh, he might, who knows, he may even be in contention for Defensive Player of the Year when it's all said and done. Yeah, he is certainly a part of that conversation every year. But now switching yeah. to number three, a team that doesn't really play defense. What can you tell us about the Houston Rockets? Yeah, I have them at number three because uh, they're really impressive. I mean, they're arguably right now one of the Western Conference's uh, 
best chances right now taking down the defending champions. I think that, you know, it's, I mean, it all comes down to a seven game series, what's going to happen there. But James Harden right now, I know he's your favorite player um, in the league, um, establishing himself early as the early MVP runaway candidate. He's playing so, so well. Um, This team is just really good. James Harden, 30 points a game, 10 assists per game, uh, almost two steals a game. Um, you know, rebounding is not his cup of tea, but you know, he's got a supporting cast around him as well. Eric Gordon, uh, who, by the way, hasn't he been like the perennial sixth man guy in the past? And now he's, you know, he's starting and he's averaging 23 points a game. I mean, that's, that's insane. Uh, Clint Capella is playing really well and averaging, um, 13 and, and almost 12, um, playing, with a he has a player efficiency rating right now of 27.7 and uh you know James Harden has a 29.8 so you're looking at Clint Capella being a, one of the most valuable players on this team i mean that's unbelievable um and they don't they're not a very big defensive team and we know that and we know what they can do um you know they average a lot of points um, but they are on a huge streak right now um you know winners of six straight games um, and, uh, now they're playing the Raptors, but, um, they beat the Cavs and they beat the, uh, the, the Knicks who have been playing, um, you know, better, but you know, their last loss was against the Sixers. So <laughs> we see what they've been doing and, uh, it's just been really impressive. And that's why I have them that high. Yeah. Capella is the guy I've been really impressed with. I think after they made that move to get Chris Paul, they sacrificed a lot of depth and now Capella has made up for it with a lot of really strong play. Um, with Chris Paul being out, though, and Harden thriving in an on-ball role, how is that going to have to affect him when Chris Paul comes back and takes over the main ball-handling duties? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be tough. Uh, but I think Chris Paul, you know, he's he's a great player. He's a, he's a team guy. And I think when you have uh, when you have him and Harden, I think they played well together in their first game. Um, you know, they, they beat the, the Warriors by one point, and Paul... He, he played 33 minutes and he didn't shoot very well. But, you know, you have a James Harden there and, um, you know, you have these two guys that want the ball. But I think uh, I, I think Harden's going to realize that they have a really good chance of even better chance of winning when Chris Paul's on the floor. And I think when they start to 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 uh, feed off each other, uh, I, I don't know. I don't think it's going to I think it's going to help them more than it's going to hurt them. Now, at number two, you have the Golden State Warriors. We don't really even need to talk about them as a team. I think we know what they are. The better question mm-hmm. is, how do you stop this team? Yeah, I mean, how do you stop them? That That's a really good question. I mean, when they are going, they are just going. I mean, they, they keep going and they keep going. I almost had them at number one, even with the Celtics in their 12 straight games. Like, I, I almost had them at number one because of how good we, we know how good they are. I mean, this is pretty much the same exact Warriors team Every year, I mean, but the thing about this team is they've they've gotten better. Arguably, they've gotten better. Their bench is better. Um, you have a Nick Young who I think is one of the most the the biggest free agent. We're gonna get to free agent signings later, but he's one of the biggest free agent signings uh, on this bench, playing really really well for them. Um, Caspi's been playing well as well. Um, that's a huge offseason signing. This team is the defending champions. They have won two of the last three NBA championships, and they're absolutely amazing. I mean, they keep going and keep going. 
Then at number one, you have the Boston Celtics. They made the big addition of Kyrie Irving, and they're on this big win streak. Yeah. How much of this is the addition of Kyrie Irving, and how much of it is Brad Stevens and his system? Yeah, you know, it's, it's really it's really interesting. I think it's a I think a lot of it has to do with Kyrie. I think I think him coming on this team is a big big thing. Um, we saw, you know, the way that he has played on this team is unbelievable. We're seeing what he can do on his own. I mean, I think the difference between him being on his own when he was with Cleveland and, and uh, before LeBron came to town uh, and now is the maturity. I mean, he's older. Um, he's he's been in the league before. He's a, he's an NBA champion, um, you know, and now he kind of gets to lead a team um, and he's playing really well. And he, he's he's been there and he's been doing it really well for them. Uh, but also, I mean, you can also attribute it to Brad Stevens because we've, Kyrie's out. Uh, has been out with a face injury um, as of late, the last couple of games, and they've still been winning. I mean, they're they're still winning with the supporting cast of characters that they have on this team. No Gordon Hayward and no Kyrie Irving. He's been out. Um, and, uh, you know, a few other guys, but this team is playing really well. I mean, the young guys on this team with Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, um, they're just they're just playing well together. Terry Rozier off the bench. I mean, he's playing really well. So, I think it does. I think it's both Kyrie Irving's addition to this team and Brad Stevens that is helping them uh, win games, continue to win games, even in the midst of all these injuries. Yeah, what Boston's been able to do has definitely been really impressive. Um, but now that we've talked about the top 10 teams in the NBA, let's talk about the two best players. And the two guys leading the MVP discussion early on is Giannis and James Harden. Both averaging 30 points, Harden averaging 10 assists, uh, Giannis averaging 10 rebounds. Which guy do you think has the edge for the MVP race early? Yeah, I mean, I, I right now, I mean, I think I said it before, the early runaway candidate right now, uh, as in, as we're about, you know, what, 14, 15 games into the season, um, it, it, it's, it's James Harden. I mean, I think that uh, he is just playing completely incredible basketball. He's on a mission now because last year he kind of got uh, robbed out of it, even though we knew that Russell Westbrook was going to win MVP based off of his triple-double performance, you know, breaking the record of triple-doubles in the season. Um, you know, he kind of got screwed out of that one last year. But, you know, now Harden's on a mission. I mean, not only does he think want to be the best player in the league, but he wants the Rockets to go to the NBA Finals and he wants them to win a championship. Um, and I think that 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 goes that, you know, that that says a lot about this guy, what he can do and what he's done so far. Nothing against Giannis. I think Giannis is also an MVP candidate. But, you know, and, and I think that, you know, with without Giannis on the Bucks, I don't think the Bucks would even be sniffing seven and six. So um, but right now, you know, the Rockets, everything considered um, team that doesn't play very much defense. He doesn't play much defense, but he puts up a lot of points. Um, and Harden is right now my MVP candidate. Yeah, I think I'm going to have to agree with you, but uh, you know I'm a little biased. You know you know about my affection for James <laughs> Harden. Now moving on, we're going to talk about the biggest disappointment so far in the year. Who do you have as that person for you? Well, I'm going to go a little on the Sixers side. Um, I was trying to think of a few other disappointments in the league uh, that I could think of. I think you know a, a, a big a big choice would be the Cavs just because of – you know, where they were the last couple of years with LeBron on this team. But I think that'd be a safe choice. I'm going to go Sixers on here and I'm going to say Markel Fultz. I mean, I think that the biggest disappointment right now for me, uh, I'm, I'm also biased, but 
I, I think without Markel Fultz there, this whole situation is just ridiculous. And it's a huge disappointment not having him on the floor. And and what is going on with this guy? Like, what is he hurt? Is he not hurt? Is, you know, his shot messed up? Um, you know, I'm disappointed. You're disappointed. We're all disappointed. You know, it's it's this guy was supposed to, uh, you know, supposed to help us out and, uh, you know, be, you know, on this team with Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons and, and absolutely balling out every single night. And we don't even know if we'll see Markel Fultz for the rest of the season. I mean, I, I think he'll be back before the end of the year. But I mean, the way that this team has handled the injuries, like it's just very disappointing. And that's my biggest disappointment. Yeah, it's definitely been tough as a Sixers fan to deal with the whole Markel Fultz situation. Um, I had big expectations for him. I still do. But it's yeah. been troubling to see the shoulder issue. It's been really curious with the different things that have happened around it. So I hope he gets healthy, but I would have to agree it's been disappointing so far. For my biggest disappointment, I've got George mm. Hill from the Sacramento Kings, cool. which, you know, the Kings didn't really have big expectations this year, but... They did sign George Hill to a contract that values him at $19 million a season. And he's coming off a year where he averaged 16.9 points. Right. Well, now he's playing less minutes than he did last year, scoring half what he did last year. Really, he's down everywhere across the board. And you've also seen a rookie in De'Aaron Fox come in. Get Now Fox is getting more minutes, scoring more points, getting more rebounds, more assists than a the guy they're playing $19 million a year over the next three seasons. It was a really bad decision, it looks like, for the Kings to go out and get George Hill because mm -hmm. he's given them nothing. Yeah, it's a good one. Yeah, I think George Hill is uh, he's, he's a really good one. I, I was actually thinking of him uh, about his uh, you know free agent signing. You want him to be better. Um, you know, you want him to be a, a key part of this team. But I, I even th I think that De'Aaron Fox is in some ways has been playing better than uh, George Hill, you know, and that's kind of that's the direction they want to go eventually. I think they have George Hill here now um, as a placeholder for Fox. But, you know, I, I agree. Yeah, now to go from the disappointments, we're going to go from a negative to a positive and talk about the best free agent additions of this offseason. Josh, who do you think that is? Well, some people might laugh at mine, um, but I actually thought that this one was was pretty big. I mean, it's not huge, but um, the way that he's played for being a guy that, you know, he's a former sixer and he's a he's not he, he's never been really good, but he's jumped up so big uh, and, and playing good minutes for this team. I have Dwayne Dedman as my uh, free agent signing so far. I mean, there's a lot of different guys that you could put out there as being key free agent guys. I mean, there's, uh, you know, there's a whole bunch, but I think Deadman's been playing really well for the Hawks. I mean, 10 points a game. Uh, he's averaging eight rebounds a game. Last year, he averaged five points a game um, in 17 minutes. He's only playing 24 minutes a game, and he's averaging 10 points and uh, eight rebounds um, and uh, and assists, but he's, and those numbers are down. But I think that he's playing a lot better than uh, anyone would have thought. I didn't even know who this guy was before the end, before the beginning of this season. I mean, that's 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 kind of the player that that he is. But um, I mean, it's it's a it's a different pick for my free agent signing of the year. But uh, I think that uh, so far he's playing really well for the Hawks, and that team needs. Uh, they, they need some hope because they're not looking very good. Yeah, he's a guy I didn't really even think about, but I like the pick. Um, in San Antonio, he was kind of relegated to being a glass cleaner, just going up there to get rebounds. Yeah. 
he never really had an offensive game. And now he goes to Atlanta. Like you said, he's averaging 10 points a night. He's still a reliable source for rebounds. And that's a team that needs help with their bigs. So he's definitely a good fit in Atlanta. Oh yeah, he's like he's a he's a he's a uh, glorified bench piece. That's what he's been in his career, um, and he's he's putting up good starter minutes so far. So uh, we'll we'll see uh, we'll see what happens. Yeah, now for who I think is the best free agent addition of this offseason, I'm going with a guy with a little bit of local flavor. He never played for the Sixers, but he's from the area. I'm going with Tyreek Evans with the Memphis Grizzlies. Um, he's averaging 18 points this year, and over the last six. He's averaging over 30 minutes a night and 24 points a night. I mean, suddenly he has that scoring touch. Suddenly he's looking like the guy everybody expected him to be. He dealt with injuries a lot earlier in his career. He never really could get settled in when he went to New Orleans after he spent time with the Kings. So now he goes into this offseason. No one really made a play for him, and Memphis gets him on a bit of a bargain. And suddenly they have a guy that looks like a bona fide six-man-of-the-year candidate, and he is really turning it on. Yeah, I mean, definitely. I mean, Tyreek Evans is on my fantasy team. I picked him up, um, and uh, he's playing really well. And, um, you know, the Grizzlies were also, they were almost on my power rankings as well. Um, And it's always good to see something from Tyreek Evans. I mean, this was a guy when he was in Sacramento, we thought that he was going to be a star in this league. I mean, he's been battling injuries, and he's been battling, you know, you know, he's getting, you know, he's getting older here and there, but, um, you know, he's playing, he's playing really well in the minutes that he's been given as a free agent signing in Memphis. Yeah. I actually have a couple of coworkers that, uh, played with Tyreek before he made it to the NBA. Uh, one of them said he knew him when he was a little kid and they would kind of beat him up on the basketball court when he was younger. And then they ran into him a few years later and Tyreek Evans just kind of goes up to him and says, Hey, you remember me, you know, when he's about to go into the NBA and he's just this monster. Ooh. And then uh, wow. another guy I noticed that he played against Tyreek when he was at his prep school before he went into the pros, or into college, rather. And they said he's never seen a player as fast as Tyreek Evans up and down the court. So it's great to see him actually putting in all of that upside, showing it that he still has it, that he's not close to being done. And he's given mm-hmm. him a lot of great basketball to the Memphis Grizzlies. It's great. Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. I, I love stories like that, Jesse. At Josh Liddick Talk on Twitter.com. You can read Josh's content on SportsTalkPhilly.com and Sixerdelphia.com at Sixerdelphia on Twitter. Josh, it was a pleasure to have you on. I look forward to having you on again. Yeah, you too. Thanks for having me on, Jesse. Big thank you to both Tim and Josh for joining me this week. You can read content from both of them on sportstalkphilly.com. Now, to round out the show, we're going to finish with our turnover 10, the top 10 teams in the NFL after 10 weeks. At number 10, I'm starting with the Carolina Panthers. I was down to Carolina and Seattle before the Monday night game, but Cam Newton had another one of his silence the critics games against the Miami Dolphins. He's really a difference maker when he is on like that. I was worried about him losing Kelvin Benjamin, but he really rose to the occasion, at least for this week. Now he'll be getting Greg Olson back, hopefully before the end of the season. If the Panthers can sneak in, they can be a scary team just because of how Cam Newton can affect the game. Then you factor in that they have a great defense too. 
the Panthers are not a team to sleep on right now. Number nine, I have the Jacksonville Jaguars. Their defense is good enough to overcome any mistake that Blake Bortles makes. Bortles handed the game to the Chargers in Week 10, and the Jaguars' defense just ripped it away, and they took it right back. That's what a great defense does, and you need a great defense to survive in the playoffs and to win games in the NFL. What I am worried about is that Leonard Fournette had his workload cut. He was suspended um, a week or two ago. So I'm wondering if the coaches are a little sour on him right now because he is a guy that they will need to get into the playoffs. I don't really think Chris Ivory or TJ Yeldon can do what he can do on the field. And if you do make the playoffs, there's not a better running back to have than Leonard Fournette. Coming in at number eight, I have the AFC South rival of the Jaguars, the Tennessee Titans. Marcus Mariota flashed against the Cincinnati Bengals this past week. I had kind of been waiting to see something from him. You know, he's had these moments throughout his first few seasons, and they haven't really come out this year, whether it's because he's always got some type of injury, some type of nagging, anything just to mess up his game. But this week he came out, he plays a really strong game against the Bengals, and that division is down to Tennessee and Jacksonville. Tennessee's a solid team. Their defense isn't as good as Jacksonville, so they will need Mariota to be the difference maker if they want to win that division. Number seven, I have the Kansas City Chiefs. They lost three or four before their bye week. Their bye week was this week, but it comes at a perfect time for them. They needed a fresh start, and they have a head coach who is 16-2 in his career after the bye. I mean, Andy Reid's the perfect guy to help this team bounce back right now. And then you look at what they've done taking care of the ball, second in the NFL in turnover differential. That's the kind of stat that makes you into a great team and helps you win tight games. So the Chiefs still have what they need to get into the playoffs. They're still leading their division. They just need to bounce back quick before it gets out of hand. At number six, we're keeping it in the AFC. I have the Pittsburgh Steelers. They had a really ugly performance this week against the Indianapolis Colts. That's a really bad defense out in Indianapolis, and the Steelers struggled. Um, this is a team that the Steelers should be running over, especially this late in the season and with how good the Steelers are supposed to be. Instead, they play down to the level of a very poor opponent, and that's just not a good thing to see from a team that's supposed to be a championship contender. I'm still worried about Ben Roethlisberger's commitment level. I'm worried about where his arm strength is at at this point in his career. So the Steelers slide down in week 10. Now we get into our top five. Four of our top five teams are from the NFC, starting with the Minnesota Vikings. This defense is elite. I said before how much I love watching their defense play. But if Case Keenum is throwing four touchdowns a week, then nobody's going to have a chance to beat the Minnesota Vikings. This offense was the weak link coming into the season. It was still kind of the weak link even after Dalvin Cook played well. And then Dalvin Cook went down and we expected the Vikings to fall like they did last season. Instead, that offense has continued to produce. Pat Shermer deserves to be a head coach after this year for the job he's done with that offense. And Minnesota is the clear front runner to win the NFC North at this point in the year. At number four, it's the New Orleans Saints. They're running the ball as good as anybody in football right now. Mark Ingram and Alvin Kamara are really all the offenses needed to win these games. The defense has played way over their heads, and they continue to. So you have to start asking if the defense is for real and not just a fluke like everybody was kind of thinking they were. Like I said, Ingram and Kamara have just been completely dominant. Sean Payton has utilized them as good as anybody could. And because he's using them so much, 
Drew Brees is really underused, so he's kind of fresh going into this final stretch of the year and going into the playoffs. If the Saints decide to start using Drew Brees more and increase his volume, that's something that the other teams in the league haven't had to really worry about yet. This is a former MVP, and he hasn't even been featured in the offense. The Saints could make a big run if they get that from Brees going down the line. At number three, it's the Los Angeles Rams. Jared Goff is playing better as the season goes on. Nobody really expected Goff to come out and play as good as he is, and he looks like a completely different player than he was last year in his little bit of time as a rookie. The Rams also have a defense that leads the NFL in takeaways. They are fourth in turnover differential. This is a team doing a lot of things right, and they're probably the biggest surprise of the year after the Eagles. At number two, it's the New England Patriots. They matched the Eagles by hanging a crooked number on the Denver Broncos, who were the best defense in football until they got run over by the Eagles and the Patriots. They have an offense that is making up for their defense. Tom Brady is as good as ever, which is scary to think because he's already the greatest quarterback of all time. He's still unstoppable. He's still finding out ways to win. He's still throwing to the people you don't expect him to even throw to. He's the most unstoppable player maybe the league's ever seen. The only thing that can stop the Patriots is their defense, but Brady won't let that happen on his watch. Then at number one, I still have the Philadelphia Eagles. After the bye week, I didn't drop them down. After the bye week, with all of the teams that were chasing them winning, and the Eagles still have the best record in football, which says how far ahead they were of everybody. And in their bye week, they add two ex-Super Bowl champions to the locker room. Danell Ellerby won with the Ravens. Will Beattie, an offensive tackle, won with the Giants. It also fills holes because Jordan Hicks and Jason Peters went down for the year. So it adds depth where they needed it. It puts more leadership in that locker room. And keep in mind that they just have Jay Ajayi still learning the offense. We don't know how well he'll fit, but if his first week was any indication, he's going to fit very well. Ronald Darby also returning into the secondary. So at 8-1, the Eagles are still transforming the roster a little bit. They're still bringing new looks to teams. They're very hard to predict now with how much they have going on, how many new pieces they still have to put into the team going forward. They're number one in the NFL, even though they didn't play it last week. That'll do it for this episode of The Turnover. I just want to thank everybody for listening, and we'll be back again with another episode next week.